Hello and a warm welcome to the MoveLit52 podcast from your hosts, Roland and Galena. I'm Roland and I am a skill-based weight loss coach who lost 110 pounds myself 17 years ago, kept it off ever since, and now I help my clients and readers to do the same. And I'm Galena. I'm a movement specialist and a trauma therapist, supporting people with chronic and persistent pain and recovering from emotional eating. This is your first time with us. Head on over to eatmovelift52.com slash podcast guest. Get your free download and uh, see how you can work with us. And now on to the show. Hi, and welcome to the Eat, Move, Live 52 podcast. We are so thrilled to have a very special guest today. We have Mickey Trescott from Autoimmune Wellness with us. And I met Mickey in Northern California in April, and we had a lovely conversation, talked about the new book, which is absolutely gorgeous. We're going to tell you more about it. And um, I invited her on our podcast, and she said yes. For those of you who don't know who Mickey is and why you hear this excitement in my voice, Mickey is a certified nutritional therapy practitioner and author of three best-selling books, The Autoimmune Paleo Cookbook, The Autoimmune Wellness Handbook, and The Nutrient Dense Kitchen. Gorgeous book! She's also the co-host of the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast, and she co-teaches the AAP Certified Coach Practitioner Training Program with Angie Alt. Her journey to the autoimmune protocol started as a vegan, having been diagnosed with both celiac and Hashimoto's disease. Instead of feeling better after the diagnosis, she continued to suffer for many months of deteriorating health until she made the transition to the autoimmune protocol, slowly reversing vitamin and mineral deficiencies and greatly improving her health. Today, she lives with her husband Noah on their homestead in the Willamette Valley in Oregon with their cat Savannah and horse Bear. When she's not getting crazy in the kitchen or researching how to live better with autoimmune disease, she can be found riding horses on the family's farm, obsessively knitting a pair of socks, or figuring out how to build a non-toxic, sustainable home. Miki, what an honor to have you with us. Welcome. Oh, thank you guys both for having me here. I'm really excited to chat with you today. I have to say... Once you said yes to the podcast, I immediately reached out to a few of our readers who I know are super fans of yours. And let me tell you, we've never had a guest that people were more excited about. I got a ton of questions and I had to filter through them to choose the best ones for this episode. Oh, that's really sweet. Thank you. So I'm going to jump right in because we have so many questions for you, Mickey. Where is the autoimmune paleo community today compared to seven years ago when your first book was published? I love this question. Um, so the AIP community, as you can imagine, is completely different than it was about eight years ago when it started. So um, uh, basically a sentence in Rob Wolf's book got us all started on this path and us, meaning me and about five other women who I connected with in the very early days who were just really reading between the lines and trying to search for information about how people with autoimmune disease could help heal their bodies. And in the Paleo Solution, Rob just wrote about something he called the autoimmune caveat and how he saw research that people with autoimmune disease should avoid a few extra foods because these foods were indicated in the research that they could be problematic for people with autoimmune disease. 
And so we decided to experiment with ourselves and start writing about it and posting that on blogs and on Facebook online. So we got connected with each other. And so in the early days, it was just like a, a collection of friends that were kind of doing this weird dietary change that nobody had heard of. Um, it really hadn't been fleshed out in a way. I mean, there were no Epic bars. Um, you could not buy bone broth at the grocery store. Um, you couldn't even buy whole tumor root at the grocery store. It was kind of before a lot of these food trends that have made eating this way so accessible and convenient for people. Um, you know, we had to do everything ourselves and we had to um, find the inspiration within ourselves because we didn't know if anybody who had been successful. So um, all of us were very sick. We had varying autoimmune diseases um, ranging from, uh, I have celiac disease and Hashimoto's. Um, I have a friend with multiple sclerosis, um, different skin autoimmune diseases. Um, and so just kind of seeing in this collection of women how they responded and all of us really experiencing pretty stunning progress and then continuing to write about it. So from there to here, I mean, now we're 20 or 30 books deep. We are, you know, three medical studies, um, you know, for proving the efficacy of the autoimmune protocol for various conditions. Um, doctors are actually recommending to their patients, um, even conventional doctors that have heard of the autoimmune protocol or seen the research. Um, and if you would have asked me eight years ago, if I thought that that would be possible, uh, I would have said no way, you know. So it's, it's just grown by leaps and bounds. And as you said, like, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people have gone through this journey and are sharing that with their friends and their doctors and and now are participating in research so that we can continue to learn more and be more specific about what it is exactly um, that's working so well for people and how they can customize that even further um, to help themselves. So that's fun. I'm so glad that the autoimmune paleo protocol has had such an upward trajectory and it surely is the best we can hope for, for any self-empowering mm -hmm. protocol. I'm just so glad to hear that it went that mm -hmm. way. Yeah, I remember when I first got into the paleo diet, first heard about it, I thought it was kind of crazy. And, but then I had problems and I tried it and I felt such a significant change. I can only imagine how much, how much power it gives people who have autoimmune conditions and things like that. Well, and remember like 12 years ago, it was almost impossible to go to, go to the store and get grass-fed beef or organ meats. Yeah, everything back then was just natural, low fat. Yeah, and uh, it's amazing. Like you can step into almost any grocery store now and get something that is grass-fed, organic and free range. And you can get frozen liver and even fresh liver, things that were unheard of. Yeah. Yeah. So kudos to you for sticking with all of this. It's been really meaningful to the world. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, I think a big thing about the AIP movement is that the people get into it because they're sick. And when you're sick, you have a certain level of motivation that I think goes beyond for you know, the people that are looking to optimize, you know, you have to be a certain type of person who cares about your health before you're sick. Um, most people are not that person, but then a lot of people start to care about their health 
when they start to lose it and they start to see it decline and motivation really increases. So I think the AIP community is kind of a perfect breeding ground for a lot of these ancestral health principles just because we're the people that really have the time you know, a lot of us are are not working jobs. I know I spent a long time not working and, and I had a lot of time to think about all the things I wanted to do and figure out how to do them and implement them. And the stakes were very high. So compared to, you know, most people, like I, I know, you know, there's a lot of research out there showing that, you know, m most humans on this planet need to be caring about all of these elements, like where our food's coming from, about movement, about connection, about sleep, but um, just trying to get people to understand that and take it seriously. I mean, that's a really big gap to bridge. But when you look at a chronic illness community, it, it's kind of like we're perfectly aligned just because, um, you know, we have a lot at stake and um, hopefully that can then grow into showing all of the, the people in our lives that are maybe not quite sick yet, um, inspire them to take care of their health too, because, you know, we're all in this together and, you know, it's how we create a, a vibrant, healthy planet full of humans that can follow their dreams and, you know, take care of each other. So, so Yeah. You know, as I was reading through your story, your extraordinary story of recovery, I couldn't help but wonder, was there a moment that on your trajectory you felt like, this is my now, this is the moment that I really need to dig deep into myself and find the agency and the spiritual ground to make a big turnaround because this change isn't going to come from the outside. Do you remember a moment like that? Yeah, I mean, so I I had a very long downward spiral. Um, it was about six months, and it it kind of my my health changed very slowly, and continued to get worse, continued to get worse. And I had been diagnosed with two autoimmune diseases, but I was experiencing symptoms that weren't really explained by those autoimmune diseases. And so then we were investigating other options, and my doctors thought that I was developing another autoimmune disease um, or two. And at one appointment, a doctor told me, you know, oh, you're showing symptoms of lupus or multiple sclerosis kind of overlapping, but we don't have enough testing to really diagnose you affirmatively right now. So you're just going to have to wait for about six months and continue to have these symptoms. And then we can have a discussion about, you know, which autoimmune disease it is and if there's any medications we can use to treat it. And I had just been through six months of downhill and I just remember I had a really big <laughs> mindset shift of like, oh, if that's the only option they have for me is just to wait and continue to get worse for six more months, like I need to do something, like what can I do? And so I, I shifted from what can I learn from my doctors or what can they do from me for me? to what can I do for myself? You know, can I eat different? Um, you know, is there any natural therapies that they don't know about or they, they don't um, use that I can employ to feel better? And so that was a really big shift for me. And it was shortly thereafter that I found the autoimmune protocol and I started making a bunch of changes. So one page in a book was all it took, all in quotation marks, for you to turn around your whole health trajectory and help millions on the way. So impressive. One of the things that, um, you know, we talked about was how autoimmune paleo and paleo in general have had this pushback throughout the years because of lack of research. And this is something that you and others in the community 
are really, really changing in a significant way. There's a study that came out last year, one that came out a month ago. You're in the midst of a third research project. You're such an insider to this. So can you tell us a little bit more about the research? Yeah, so uh, about three years ago, my partner Angie Nault and I, who we run a blog together called autoimmunewellness.com that provides information for people that are interested in autoimmune protocol, we had um, a doctor contact us through our contact form on our site that said, um, hi, I'm a doctor of Scripps. I have a patient with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's and they wanted to try the autoimmune protocol and I gave them a month and then they came back. I did a colonoscopy and they were like completely healed and it was just like a shocking turnaround. So I asked the patient what they did. They referred me to your website. They said, I found this website Googling. I tried this protocol from month, you know, that's all I did. And she actually is a researcher and has funding for research. So she proposed that um, we partner with her to do a study, um, which ultimately became the AIP IBD study. So it was 15 patients with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis who used my partner Angie's program, um, SAD to AIP and six, which is a really slow, gentle transition to the autoimmune protocol. They monitored these patients as they went through and then um, through elimination and then maintenance. And the results were really stunning. So a lot of these patients, I think the average disease duration was 19 years. So they were people that had been sick for a very long time. Um, They had failed traditional medications, which for IBD is biologic and steroid medications, which are very expensive, very serious drugs with a lot of side effects. Um, And after five weeks, So the study was actually 12 weeks, but at five weeks, 73% of them reached clinical remission. And that means that they went in with uh, a scope, they did a colonoscopy, and there were no visible signs of disease. Um, And so not only did, you know, three quarters of them reach that point, but they maintained it through the maintenance phase, which was really important. So that study really put AIP on the map as far as medical research. And we started to get a lot of interest from other doctors about um, different autoimmune diseases. And since then, we've put together a Hashimoto study, um, so about a year ago, which sounds crazy because this the IBD study took a very long time just in planning, preparation, funding, execution, publishing. I mean, it was a three-year process. But in the last year, we were approached by a doctor that wanted to do a Hashimoto study at the Ancestral Health Symposium, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with. It's a conference that I really enjoy. And, um, and Dr. Abbott um, wanted to do Hashi's, um, but he didn't have funding. So we actually crowdfunded for the study and ran the study last year and it's already published. The results just came out um, and of course showed really great effects for people with hypothyroidism. Um, there were some really interesting insights about the, the study and, um, and basically how Um, The dietary change, the way it worked for people with hypothyroidism was a little bit different than the IBD. And so it's um, hopefully going to lead to some further research and some further insights there. Um, And then right now we just uh, successfully funded an eczema and a psoriasis study with a third doctor, um, and that'll be enrolling this fall. So lots of awesome opportunities. We're hoping that it leads to even more interest and even more research um, because, you know, that's how we learn about this stuff and, and learn how to customize it to everyone's journey, you know? So did the subject studies come from your community? 
Well, so the second study we selected, um, we, we selected people that had not done the autoimmune protocol, which is actually hard from our community because most people have. So we put, we put it out using our community, but a lot of times the participants came from like a friend of a friend. So like if you had tried AIP and you, you have a friend that has Hashimoto's and they haven't tried it yet, the, a lot of the um, participants were those type of like second removed or people that were in our community that just haven't had the courage or, you know, the, the right space in their life or the help, frankly, to actually make the transition and do it. So, yeah, I can certainly tell, you know, in the client population we work with, how many people don't have the energy or they're single moms or, you know, they just haven't had the environment to try it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm the kind of person who's willing to, to try things just to, as long as I know they're, they're safe, just to see if it might help. But I can totally see how people will be inspired by the fact that there are studies that have been done and that there are studies actively being done supported by doctors and nutritionists. Well, yeah, it's amazing. If you think about the Mediterranean diet, you know, mm-hmm. everyone imagines, well, olive oil and olives and, you know, mm-hmm. whole grains and fish, what could be bad? But those don't tend to be things that people are addicted to. And then, no. you know, you come to the autoimmune paleo protocol or even like a simpler elimination protocol like a real food reset and people are like well, what do you mean i can't have sugar because <laughs> on you know the dash or the mediterranean diet nobody says you cannot have these things that they just say focus on all these other things right yeah so we're hoping that by crowding out the fast food or by crowding out the convenient sugary foods and drinks you improve your health and you do but what happens when a food is the culprit right? In this case, because there's a system or multiple systems that are compromised. So I'm not surprised that people have been waiting for research. And what a powerful combination of ancestral principles, science-backed evidence, and millions of people who have improved, who now through the network out there can talk to each other and support each other. And you have this incredible community. So cool. Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. so totally agree. So we just talked about some diets exclude things. So the AIP protocol does exclude some things and sometimes permanently. Like, do you ever feel like there are things that you really loved that you're, like, how do you feel when you realize you might never have to be able to have that again? Yeah, so the biggest food category that I really thought was a no for me. So in AIP, for those of your listeners that don't know what it is, it's an elimination diet where it's actually more of a template than a diet, but you go through phase one, which is strict elimination of grains, beans, eggs, nuts, seeds, dairy, and nightshade family foods. And then you reintroduce foods starting from the least likely to cause a problem down to the more likely to cause a problem in a very sequential order. And all of the info's on our site in the books and everything. So I'm not going to make this um, about that because we could talk another whole three hours about that. Um, But basically you land on a diet that is really specific to you and actually fluctuates over time. So when you're in the reintroduction phase, it's not something that you're just done with. You start to reintroduce foods, you see which ones work, you see which ones don't. And then if something doesn't work, you can try it again, three, six months down the line, even three years down the line. So for me, very early on in the process, the nightshade family of foods was very problematic for me. I would get really quick swelling in my hands. I would get joint pain. Sometimes I would even get really flushed. 
Um, and I thought, okay, potatoes, peppers, eggplants, tomatoes, those are all nightshade foods. I'm just going to have to avoid them forever. I had no idea I'd eaten lots of them in my prior, prior life. So I didn't know how I'd never made the connection, but maybe these foods aren't for me. And about a year in, I started tolerating potatoes just fine. Um, and then about three years in, I started to tolerate spices from nightshade peppers, but not the actual peppers themselves. So I think it's dose dependent. So like a little cayenne pepper, a little chili pepper seem to be fine. And then now, I mean, I'm like seven, eight years in, I can't have tomatoes. I can't have the actual whole peppers. I can't have the whole eggplant, but I can play around a little bit. Like, you know, if, if a tomato touched you know, was in guacamole or something and I didn't eat the piece of tomato, but it was still kind of in there, I won't have a problem. So that's a really long way of saying like everyone has a really different tolerance. It can change over time. And yes, you can have foods and in the very beginning you might really react to. And then that tolerance might change over time as your gut heals, as your immune system kind of chills out a little bit. Um, and you never really know what you're going to discover. And um, I think that's actually really interesting and cool and kind of a fun part about the autoimmune protocols that everyone is on their own journey and they're going to find out what works for them. So you pretty much just answered my question, which was going to be once you have been on this protocol for a while, does your, it seems like your immune system kind of calms down a little bit and it's not so much on attack of this ready to swarm this army of anti-nutrients. Um, yeah, yeah. Is that how, is that how this works? For sure. And sometimes it can even be your mental and emotional state. So a lot of my clients have had this issue and I've had it myself where I'll go on vacation and I use vacation as kind of a opportunity to enjoy life, right? You're like unfurling the sails. I'm like going to the boundary of what I know I can do with my diet. I'm like on the line, if not just like putting a foot over, you know, because that's, that's the fun part about travel, right? Seeing, you know, eating new things and having new experiences. Plus you're being relaxed. Hopefully you're in more of a parasympathetic state. You're with people you love, you know, and most people tolerate when they're feeling good like that, they tolerate more things and they come home and there's work and there's stress and, and all these things creep back in. So part of it can be your emotional state too. And, uh, and the first time I had something that had touched a tomato, which I know sounds ridiculous, but I had been very afraid of tomatoes up until this point. I was on vacation and I was fine. And that's when I went, oh, okay, part of this is you know, being what state of mind I'm in, you know, and, and how that affects how my body and my immune system receives the food. So it's, it's definitely not black and white. It can totally depend on, on the day sometimes. So it was very interesting because, you know, back in the day, there was a big discussion about, um, during the, when gluten, gluten-free started to become a big thing. Oh, people were saying, oh, the European gluten is different. <laughs> yeah. Remember? Because I went on vacation in yeah. Spain and I, and I had a had this, or I went to France and I had their croissant and I didn't have any sort of reaction. And I mean, yes, there could have been some sort of a difference, but as Galena and I have learned, like all of these stressors that we have, you know, to, in some level doesn't really matter. So the more stressors you bring down, the less likely another stressor is to trigger something or push you over that tipping point. So if you're on vacation and you're loving life and doing things. 
and like you have a little bit of getting lots of yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah and it's amazing how so like that's what we always say like we always tell people to look at the low hanging uh low hanging fruit like what things can you address in your life that will bring your stress down because it's going to make all of the other mm -hmm. stressors less likely to cripple you and the other thing i just wanted to say is this is such good news for people because we have a lot of people who have um we know a lot of people who have diabetes type 2 diabetes and they're like oh i know and they're just they close off their mind where they have autoimmune condition to just close things off because they know the diet's going to be hard. And in their mind, they're never going to be able to eat mm -hmm. these things again. And they're going to be miserable for life. And I'm trying to tell them that, you know, if you can get things back under control, you can, you can never go back the way you were before, but you shouldn't have been there in the first place, right? But you can start to enjoy some of these things. Or like you said, if a piece of tomato slips by, where you can have spices again. You know, it's like your life, you know, you take care of things, you get things under control, and uh, who knows what's gonna happen. So that gives, I think it could, will give a lot of people hope. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, the big thing too about just worrying that you're never gonna be able to eat foods again, um, I always tell people to think like, you know, how do you feel when you eat those foods? Like, is it worth your pain and suffering? And a, a lot of people like I'm a celiac. I can never have gluten again, no matter if it's European gluten, whatever kind of gluten it is. If Michigan <laughs> thinks that it's pretending to be gluten, it's I can't. Um, but, you know, a lot of people say to me like, oh, you know, aren't you sad that like when you go to Europe, you can't have the bread? And I'm like, no, because I can actually stand up on my own two feet and not like fall over like like I did when I was um, being glutened all the time, you know, my brain didn't work, my body didn't work, I couldn't sleep, I I was a wreck. And that is not worth bread. Bread is not that great. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think sometimes we we give food so much power in our lives. And like, I'm a foodie, I love food, but I, I think it's fun to find the foods that I that I can eat within my framework of what works for me, you know? And I think most people, once you get past the other side and you start feeling better, and then you look at whatever it is for you, the bread or the tomatoes, or, you know, I used to grow tomatoes. I That's more of, for me than the bread because um, I live on a farm and I like to grow things and homegrown tomatoes are just so different than when you get at the store. Um, but I just, I've surrendered, I've given it up and I have other things that I like and I focus on those, you know? Um, so. You know, our founding fathers grew them just ornamentally. Yes, actually. And um, they are a poisonous plant family. I ha actually have a direct relative mm -hmm. that died be from eating a nightshade berry as a child, um, like three three generations back. Um, so, you know, they, it used to be a poisonous, a very poisonous plant that, you know, in the Middle Ages, yeah. people used to poison each other with it. And that small compound yeah. is what triggers the immune system. And that's what everybody's reacting to. So, um, yeah. Interesting little food fact, but. <laughs> very, very interesting. And I think, you know, you spoke a little bit about being in rest and digest and that more parasympathetic electricity when we are on vacation. And I think what people forget is that the immune system is a part of the fight or mm -hmm. flight system. So we don't really differentiate between aggressors and when we're stressed and when our lives are so crazy and overwhelmed. And we try to do a million things in one day and we're trying to keep up with news and study and work and kids and jobs and a perfect house or whatever people shoot for these days with HGTV and other kinds of brainwashing. <laughs> what happens is we just lose sight of what our normal tone is. 
and we're so overwhelmed. And so European gluten then, you know, is this, is this mythical creature now, but the actual mythical creature is rest and walking and being outdoors and taking four hours to eat, which in mm -hmm. Europe we do. Uh, and in America, it's two to 11 minutes in the last um, research that I read, the average meal, two to 11 minutes. Well, they should stop studying us because we're bringing the average down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so good. We have so many questions for you. Shall yeah. we keep going? Sure. Um, well, one of the things that some I've heard, you have celiac and you obviously had symptoms, but um, I've heard that there are people who have celiac disease who don't necessarily have any um, like pain or discomfort, but are there other symptoms they can look out for, for autoimmune conditions that might not, I hate to use the word trigger, but trigger their, their mind to say, oh my gosh, I have this autoimmune condition. I gotta yeah, so, um, you know, this is really common with celiac, um, but a lot of doctors think of it as a GI disorder, which Physically it is, but the way that it manifests for some people and the way that it manifested for me was not in any digestive discomfort. I, I did not have any pain. I did not have any bloating. I did not have diarrhea or constipation. I didn't throw up. Um, these are kind of normal symptoms of celiac disease. Um, instead, I got brain symptoms. So I would get extreme brain fog. I would get dizziness issues, balance. Um, you know, if something fell on the top, on the floor and I needed to pick it up, I would fall over. I was just really uncoordinated, unbalanced, and then emotional instability. So I had a really hard time regulating my emotions or having even the appropriate emotion. So I would just like be cooking something and it wouldn't go right. And I would just start crying and I would leave the pan flaming and, you know, about to burn the house down. And I would just be sitting on the floor crying, not understanding what was happening. Um, so that disconnection from just like reality, what's happening, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of doctors who are kind of like, eh, that's not really a symptom of celiac disease, but I can tell you it stopped the day I, <laughs> I stopped eating gluten. So, um, and I've heard from many other celiacs that have had experiences like that. So um, the moral of the story is that um, I, I think there is a wider spectrum of what people can experience with autoimmune disease, especially people who are highly sensitive and who are understanding that there's something wrong with them. Maybe before clinically, there are other symptoms. Um, this happens a lot with people with thyroid disorders. We're told that, okay, these are the thyroid symptoms, you know, cold hands and feet, weight gain, um, you know, on and on. But if you don't have all those things, like I didn't have all those things. I had the cold hands and feet, I had the hair loss, um, I had the extremely low body temperature, but I was the same weight that I am now. So when I went into the doctors, they said, oh, you don't have thyroid disease, you're not fat. And I, I was like, yeah, but I, I, I'm freezing, like my hair's falling out, all these things. And so I think sometimes we think that the diseases really have to present a certain way. And for most autoimmune people, they don't, you know, they, they present in whatever way it's going to manifest for you. And, um, so for anybody that is kind of undiagnosed, you know, there are merits to getting a diagnosis. Also, there are merits to not being obsessed with getting a diagnosis. So there's kind of a spectrum where, um, it is helpful because it helps you be informed about your decision and figure out what kind of maintenance 
you know, routine lab work you need to get done to kind of check up on how you're doing. And then also knowing what to expect and um, what to look out for if your disease is worsening, because I'm not anti-conventional medicine. I'm pro using all the tools in the toolbox, including things you can do for yourself, natural things and conventional to live your healthiest life. And for some people, you know, that means adding some drugs and surgery into, into the mix. And for some people that means going completely all natural and, you know, doing food and lifestyle and there's no judgment either way. Neither, neither is better. If you end up with a life that you're happy with and that you love and, you know, you're able to be healthy. Um, so that's, you know, that's a lot, (laughs) but, um, I think that, you know, it's up to each person to decide when they really need to be pursuing diagnosis and what that's going to get for them. And, and that's the question I always ask my clients is, okay, do you need a diagnosis of celiac disease because your aunt is being really mean and saying that your dietary stuff is an eating disorder and you need a piece of paper that says you have celiac disease to prove it to them? Or could you do some inner work to learn how to be confident and strong and, and say, you know what, your, your antagonization is like not supporting me living my healthiest life. You know, (laughs) there are situations where diagnosis is actually not productive. There are other situations where it is really productive. So, um, and you know, with over a hundred autoimmune diseases, there's just, there's so many directions you could go and trying to figure it out. Um, but um, just in starting to inform yourself about the symptoms that you're having and figuring out what kind of category that puts things in and then knowing about the tests is the place to start. You know, it's tricky. Yeah, it, it is tricky, but it's also, you know, something that we notice is we, we have a, a simple 30-day elimination diet that um, we run once or twice a year for big groups of people who are just newly aware and just finding out that, oh, guess what? Maybe alcohol and sugar aren't the best things for me and grains. And what we find out, people fill out a symptom tracker in the beginning of the 30 days and a symptom tracker at the end of the 30 days. And so often people are absolutely unaware that they have tons of symptoms until the symptoms Mm -hmm. go away. Mm So, they have to retroactively go yeah. back to, <laughs> well, I guess my eyes yeah. were running and I didn't know. Are you ready to have the health you deserve? Imagine how you'd feel if you were part of a community that valued healing movement, simple but nutrient-dense eating, and a lifestyle that supported your needs rather than driving you into the ground. Got it? Feels pretty good, right? Well, you don't have to imagine it anymore. Eat Move Live 365 community is all that and more. It's a thriving community of like-minded people enjoying new themed content every month. Original recipes, whole body movement programs, audiobook chapters, interviews, and exclusive mindfulness practices new each month. Whether your goal is to get healthy or lose weight, get rid of those aches and pains, or chill out with less anxiety, the Eat Move Live 365 community is for you. Head to the show notes or to eatmovelive52.com slash community for a special offer for podcast listeners. I guess my, I was running for 12 years and I didn't have a diagnosis. So I'm curious in the process of elimination and reintroduction, given that most people live this highly stressed out, fatigued, disembodied life where they're overwhelmed and they might not be paying attention. Like I'm a hyper feeler. I'm a sensitive person. I'm an empath. 
I can feel the drop of a micronutrient <laughs> in my body. But most people yeah. aren't like that. And I'm not saying it's a blessing. So <laughs> what would you say for most people are the typical symptoms that you see if they go away with AIP, then maybe in reintroducing in the last phase where you introduce the most problematic foods, maybe they come back. What are some typical symptoms that people can work Yeah, out? so the, the first thing is just that um, to know that during the elimination phase, in order to move on to reintroduction, you have to have meaningful changes. And that means something that is trackable that you've noticed a, a concrete shift that you can then use that new baseline in order to gauge if reintroduction is working. If someone doesn't have that, it's really hard to tell when they start reintroducing foods uh, what's working for them. So like a tracker, a symptom tracker is super helpful. It's you know non-negotiable in my practice. Um, but seeing how people's baselines change from before they start the elimination phase to right before they start reintroductions and then through reintroductions is incredibly helpful. Um, people can have, so a lot of people with autoimmune disease come to the autoimmune protocol wanting their autoimmune symptoms to go away, right? So if someone has alopecia, they want their hair to start growing back. If someone has psoriasis they on their arms, you know, they want to see their rash go away. If they have Hashimoto's, they want to see their fatigue go away. I wish I could say that for everyone, those are the things that are resolved the first, but that's not always how it works. So a lot of times we're just looking for really basic functions, things that health coaches are super tuned into that regular people are not. So it's the ability to sleep enough, you know, falling asleep easily, staying asleep, waking up at the right time, not feeling fatigued, digestion. You know, how does, how does your food feel in your stomach? Are you getting any kind of reflux or indigestion? Is food moving on appropriately? Or are you getting bloated? Or do you um, feel like there's any increasing in constipation or diarrhea? How is the bowel habits um, changing? Those are the really basic, basic things. You know, skin, um, even for the person with psoriasis who's worried about their lesions, they might just see that their skin looks a little bit smoother. They might look brighter. Their eyes might look a little less red. Um, these are things that aren't sexy to people. They're like, they want the thing that they want, <laughs> but they don't seem to think like, I've worked with people who have come to me with seven bowel movements a month in their food, tra in their tracker and, and saying not even put listing that they have constipation. And after doing an elimination diet, they're starting to have a, a bowel movement every day. And they're saying, yeah, but my rash isn't gone. And you're like, yes, but you're actually like your body is starting to function normally. So the first thing, things that I look for are really the basic, basic things. You're not going to see mileage in the, the big thing that you want until really the, hum, the basic human bodily functions are really starting to, um, to work better. So those are things like just looking at um, early changes in skin, early changes in digestion, elimination, you know, making sure those detox pathways are open, um, sleep, moods, you know, um, hunger, any changes in that kind of thing. Then moving on, people might see things like resolution of whatever their autoimmune symptoms are, better energy, rashes going away, um, joint pain going away, those sorts of things. But um, I just don't want anyone to get too much false hope that that's what they're going to get like day three, <laughs> because 
you know, usually it's, it's the stuff that, that people undervalue, like the foul habits that start to change right away. And if they didn't have a coach cluing them in saying, look, this is something that your body needs to optimize and do every single day just to change their means that other things are coming. It means that your digestion is shifting. You're going to start assimilating those great nutrients that you're eating now. Um, and it's going to take time for your body to actually incorporate that into healing itself. It's also not sexy to think that sometimes you have to do something so you're not going to continue to get yeah. worse. Yeah. Right. So you know, like you can't always, yeah. you could be at a stage where you can't reverse something. Mm -hmm. But since a very high, you probably know better than, than I do, but the, there's a very high percentage of people who have one autoimmune mm -hmm. condition will also have a second one or will ex start to exhibit the, the symptoms of the second or third or fourth one later down the road. So if you don't take care of the baseline problem, like making your body work correctly, you are increasing your odds of that of letting that other one. Yep. Come, totally. Come totally. Mm -hmm. And, and actually, um, there are two words that I really don't like in the autoimmune vocabulary and they are remission and cure and, you know, autoimmune disease mm -hmm. is incurable. Um, I think it's great that there are doctors that are out there looking for it, but the way, what we know about the immune system is that it really does not know how to forget attacking a certain tissue once it's triggered it. And so it's unrealistic to expect that you're just going to fully cure your autoimmune disease. Um, in remission, it doesn't really accurately reflect what happens when someone is living well with autoimmune disease, because like in my example with celiac disease, technically I'm in remission when I'm eating gluten-free, but then I eat a bite of bread and I'm not in remission. And that just, it seems so, um, to people that aren't experiencing autoimmune disease, I think they get a really false sense. They're like, oh, you're in remission. You don't have to do anything. It's, it's not like cancer. It doesn't really work like that. So I like to speak about healing from autoimmune disease as, as being, um, well-managed. You know, I speak about my autoimmune diseases, like they're a part of me. They are not the whole part of me, but they're a part of me that has to be managed. I need to put in certain inputs so that, you know, these things aren't out of control. Um, and, uh, and I think that's realistic for people with autoimmune disease because, you know, a lot of people with autoimmune diseases, um, we have to learn how to live our best for the rest of our lives <laughs> with these conditions that, um, that, you know, going around and saying like, I'm cured, it's fine. It, it just, it doesn't really, I think, paint a very, um, authentic picture of what it means to live well with autoimmune disease. So, um, well, one of the things that I, I think, and I don't know, I, I'm just thinking out loud here, is that you're almost like creating a buffer. So the longer you are um, like eating the right way, reducing stress, and keeping, like, for instance, you eating right to manage your celiac um, symptoms, or I don't know how you would phrase it, but you've created this buffer. So when you do have an accidental um, exposure, yeah. it's not... As, as horrible and debilitating as it would be as if you were constantly doing it. You're not having these things. You can probably recover exactly. faster. And the damage is not going to be as severe and much less likely to trigger an autoimmune, like a, that army yeah. that we talked about earlier, just swarm back in and, and 
Well, I think resilience is a really important concept for people with autoimmune disease. So what we're doing when we, we, um, you know, sleep well, and we take care with our diet, we eat a lot of nutrient dense foods, and we manage our stress, what we're doing is we're building resilience. And we can also do it emotionally, just in how we shift our perspective about what it means to live with an autoimmune disease and, and how we carry that through the world. Um, but that resilience will serve us because we will have flares with autoimmune disease. Like, you know, I have Hashimoto's flares. Some people are just scandalized when I talk about it on Instagram and they're saying, oh my gosh, but didn't you write the books? Aren't you healed? And it's like, no, that's not how autoimmune disease works. You know, sometimes, um, you know, th there are things that you do to cause a flare and, you know, patterns of life, maybe something happens and it's really stressful. Sometimes you do all the, the right things and you still get a flare and that's okay. You know, we have the tool and like, I know what um, I can do to help me feel the best that I can. And I do those things and I try to get the most I can, but I'm not also tied to that outcome. So, um, so I like the concept of resilience and just um, not trying to be perfect, um, not trying to control everything because we can't do those things, but just, you know, trying to build up some stores so that we can, you know, survive any storm that comes ahead, you know? I love that resilience is a great perspective because it, you know, it, it puts you in a strong position to know that you are larger than symptoms, that you're larger than the days or the weeks that might be very difficult. So I have a sensitive question and uh, it came from um, one of your super fans who's also an RD who works with a uh, uh, autoimmune population. And uh, her question was around weight. And weight is a very sensitive subject to begin with. You know, we have the health at every size movement. Uh, we also have in the autoimmune um, group of illnesses, we have so many people with hypothyroidism who are overweight. And um, it's such a co, it's kind of a comorbidity with autoimmune, some autoimmune illnesses. And um, her question in particular around weight was, uh, she finds that her clients with autoimmune illness have a harder time losing weight. And she was asking, is the priority to really lower inflammation and then perhaps weight goes away? Or is that something that isn't even on the table because of the, the need to get nutrient dense food? And my question is, do you see that? Do you see people coming to AIP hoping to lose weight and then they don't? And, uh, and how do we manage that and how do we speak? Yeah. So, um, you know, I see people on both ends of the spectrum. So, and, and I actually have personal experience on both ends because I have an autoimmune disease that typically causes weight gain or being overweight. And I also have an autoimmune disease that causes extreme weight loss and, and people being underweight. So, you know, it's probably one of the factors why I have not had a struggle, um, too far in either direction. Although I have had unintended weight gain, unintended weight loss and and, and I know that when I was experiencing each one, they were uniquely stressful. Um, so some autoimmune diseases, you know, like the IBD diseases, celiac, a lot of digestive diseases, um, people can be underweight and then like the Hashimoto's, um, or even the side effects of a lot of medications that are used to, um, treat like connective tissue diseases, um, like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus can also, a side effect can be that the medications cause weight gain. So yes, this is a big topic for our community. And the thing that I always try to start with is that health is different and more important than image. So it's hard to tease out sometimes which element of um, being overweight 
is folk, someone is focusing on um, maybe being hard on themselves because they believe that they need to be a certain size in order to be accepted or in order to be valued. Um, and then there's also a part of it that is going to be a determining factor in their health too. So um, a good coach will help them figure out when um, being overweight is actually something that is a low-hanging fruit and something that needs to be addressed sooner than later, or when it's like, you know, the last 10 pounds and it's this person beating themselves up for not looking like, you know, everybody else in their friend group or whatever, um, when really they are a perfectly acceptable and probably a healthy body weight for, for who they are. So, um, so, you know, that's the first thing. Um, I always encourage my clients to focus on health before, um, or, or the way they feel before how much they weigh you know, and actually it's the underweight clients that are the ones that I will put the most input into trying to get them to gain weight because, um, those consequences are pretty bad when someone is constantly wasting, um, with someone who's overweight, as long as they're not continuing to gain weight, I will encourage them to focus on how they feel over the weight loss because the, you know, trying to combine both of those goals, um, trying to feel better, trying to have good energy, trying to not have joint pain, trying to work on your digestion, trying to add, um, also lose weight consistently on top of that is a little bit unrealistic. And so I'll encourage people to go at least, you know, six months, as long as they're maintaining and not continuing to gain without making any other tweaks. So that might be, um, you know, to their exercise routine or their movement routine, it might be making tweaks to their macros, those kind of things. But I think having those two goals in there at the exact same time is, can be really stressful for people. And, um, this is a really good moment to have a discussion about what health is and um, separate that from image. You know, it's hard to do in our culture, you know? Very, very hard. We're very fat <laughs> yeah. uh, And um, I feel like uh, the health at every size movement has brought attention to the fact that you can be healthy mm -hmm. at every size. And at the same time, if you have an illness, it's about how can you be healthier mm -hmm. with what you've been given. And so it makes it extra complex. I am curious um, with the other part of the question where, you know, when, when inflammation is, is kind of brought under control and you're eating a nutrient dense diet and correcting nutrient deficiencies, do you find that that naturally brings people towards them more naturally? Yeah. And actually one of the things that I didn't bring up that we noticed in the Hashimoto's AIP study, and you know, these were all women with, um, hypothyroidism is that, um, weight loss was common throughout the study. Um, they were, um, consistently and steadily losing weight. And that's something that I have seen in my practice too. Um, you know, I also have seen a lot of weight loss resistance, so I'm not going to say that every person that goes on AIP is going to lose weight. Um, it's not a weight loss diet. It's not tailored to make people lose weight, but it's an interesting perspective because, um, people equally people that come to AIP with, um, with, uh, weight 
um, who are underweight, some of them gain weight because they're healing their intestines and, and their ability to digest um, improves and they're able to nourish themselves back to health. And then the, the same diet could be eaten by someone who is overweight due to a hormonal imbalance. Their hormones get evened out and then they might lose weight. So um, it's, it's not... Uh, weight specific, but it does have kind of a clarifying effect on a lot of these factors that can be preventing people from being a healthy weight. And sometimes when they go through an elimination diet, you start to increase nutrient density. Your body has all the nutrients it needs to manage all these complex interactions and things just kind of balance out, you know? And then for the other people, they might need some tweaks and, and, you know, there's, there are a lot of issues out there that people can have ranging from, you know, just like a deficiency in thyroid hormone. It might just be like a medication issue. Um, it might be something that they're eating. Maybe they're replacing junk food with uh, paleofied treats, you know. Um, it might be that they're not managing their stress and they're not sleeping, you know. So there's a lot of other things that could be a barrier there too that they can dig into. So since we're on the subject, I'm going to ask you the yeah. other listener question, which is a longtime okay. AIP follower, six plus years. And she's recently noticing that um, she's been gaining weight on her AIP uh, protocol, but she's also wondering if perhaps she might need to lower her carbohydrate intake and put less honey in her smoothies. Oh, <laughs> honey in the smoothies. So actually, I think smoothies in general um, predispose us to being a little too high carb and they can be a little too quick to digest. So you can't really chew a smoothie and a lot of the things that go into a smoothie need to be chewed. The brain needs to get the signal, send the signals that digestion needs to happen. When you drink a smoothie, you know, it's you're, you're turning your eating time into a like two minute event. It does not give your body the amount of time that it needs to actually coordinate what needs to happen unless you're chewing your smoothie which I know some people say um, but I actually don't let my clients drink smoothies unless they are trying to gain weight because I like to use it as a way to trick the body into getting more calories into the system um, but if you're finding that you're gaining weight um, I think that's a pretty good thing to try and replace a smoothie especially a smoothie with honey I, I think that that sounds like a really sweet situation going on there. Um, I would just straight up replace that with something like, um, like a liver pate and like, um, maybe some carrot slices. Um, I find that when people are going for a sweeter, quicker snack, if you trade that in for something that's like a extra nutrient dense bomb, sometimes the body goes, Oh, I wanted something. I think it was sugar, but you're giving me nutrients. And that's really interesting. I'm going to see what I'm going to do with that. And it might kind of break that cycle of craving. So that's the first suggestion that I have just about um, smoothies. And then, you know, the carb level is really individual for people. So um, some people thrive on a lower carb diet. I would say in general, I don't think that autoimmune people thrive on like a keto style diet. I think that that's more rare. Um, 
and especially people with hypothyroidism, um, you actually need insulin in order to convert the inactive thyroid hormone T4 into T3. So going too low carb for people with thyroid problems can actually slow that conversion down and can actually make them feel a little more tired. I, I notice this myself. Um, so I don't notice it unless I go pretty low, like under like 60 or 70 grams of net carbs. Um, but everyone's going to have a different level and it's kind of up to experimentation. So that's one of those things that, you know, you can try kind of cutting out those sweet potatoes and switching them with some, um, less starchy, um, vegetables and kind of see how that goes. Yeah. Lovely. Thank you. What a, what a great way to answer her. And uh, she's a beautiful woman. So I hope that she feels, she feels how <laughs> yeah. she looks. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you know, know, like weight gain is just a symptom. It's not, you know, it, it's nothing to freak out about, but it is your body telling you something. So sometimes when our body's telling us something is culturally, you know, uh, this unacceptable thing, it, it panics us in a way, but you know, someone can feel equally the same about like weight loss, unexpected weight loss or, um, any other symptom. And it's just information. And we can be grateful for that information and understand that we might need to take action on something, which is a great position to be in, is actually listening and um, being able to do something about it. Sometimes I tell my clients, you know, I am so grateful that my body tells me what's something I can feel and see in the mirror, as opposed to all these hidden ways that it might be conveying something on the inside that I can't feel. Like I can't feel the lining of my you know the endothelial lining changing or i can't feel my vli changing or the the diverticuli changing but i can see my roles mm -hmm. in the mirror and and that's that's in a way a blessing that we we have something we can see and act upon and just on the smoothie theme i'm two and a half years into an orthotropic treatment to change my jaw alignment and teeth alignment and I have not been able to chew for two and a half years. I can tell you that uh, eating a ton of smoothies and pureed food and blended salads has really put on some weight on me. And I have been hungrier than I've ever been in the last two and a half years. Uh, and it's just an interesting thing to observe. Wow, it's healthy food, but because it's blended or pureed or, or taken in liquid form, it really has a different effect. So I'm very glad that you mm -hmm. spoke about it. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I, you know, I like to explain it on the flip side as using that as a tool for people who need extra nourishment and need to gain weight, because that will make the people that maybe are gaining weight going, Oh, like if I, if I don't want this, then, then maybe why am I having a smoothie for breakfast every single day? You know? And so it's usually the people that are undergoing cancer therapy, chemotherapy, um, that are having a hard time keeping getting good nutrient dense food or people that are underweight that I really recommend smoothies for because of that opposite effect. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Okay, we have a couple more questions. We're going to let you go. So we love your latest book, right? And there's a picture oh. of your grandma, right? So... Do you have a special connection with your grandmother or has it this I, I do. Yeah. I mean, she's just always been someone who loves cooking and loves bringing people together over a great meal. So 
Yeah. I love that. I have a grandma like that too. I always feel like she's over my Aww. shoulder. I <laughs> like, oh, I'll put more of this, put less of that, you know? It's so sweet. My grandmother was not an amazing cook. She was fine. But um, so like I get my inspiration from other places mm -hmm. like your cookbook. And I'm super excited because I want to be able to eat things like liver and organs and stuff like that. But in my, in, you know, in American culture, we just mm -hmm. didn't grow up with that stuff, mm -hmm. right? So it's really interesting. So I look forward Ooh, to Ooh, well, I got, I got some pate <laughs> recipes in there. You're going to like. I know. I <laughs> do love pate. I grew, my father's from Germany. Yep, love liverwurst yep, and Braunschweiger. Yep. So um, pate is my, uh, is the one area where I do, I do enjoy it. And I come from a part of the world where we eat kind of unmentionable parts. Um, like, you know, little kids love lamb brains and it's just like something you put on toast. Um, but, you know, being in a mixed family and also being away from those ingredients that like, I don't know where to get lamb head here. I have no idea, you know, and, and, and I don't even know most times where I'm from, you can just order it and they just bring it to you. <laughs> and um, here it's really not on any restaurant menu. So we're very, very grateful. I love your, your oyster mm, dip yeah. recipe. I like frying that because I have a texture thing with okay. oysters. So I feel like maybe if they if they're hidden yeah. in there, I can they I can totally do it. Talking about your book, what do you have to say about? I feel like so many people feel intimidated by um, making nutrient dense food, yet at the same time you make it so accessible in all of your tools, including your latest book. What do you have to say to somebody who just kind of needs a little bit extra push to start? Hmm. So I would say, you know, start with a thing that you already know that you like. So if say you're someone that, um, you know, you don't eat a lot of seafood or maybe you eat no seafood and the only seafood you like is white fish. Don't start with clams or shrimp. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or sardines. Start with the white fish. If you know you like it, start finding a few different ways to cook it and start branching out into more fishier tasting fish. Um, instead of, you know, going from a one to a 10, you know, just go each step up. It, it might apply to vegetables, you know. If you don't like green vegetables, start by finding the one green vegetable that you can tolerate the most, figure out the best way to cook it, and then move on from there. I think a lot of times people think that, um, um, they have to go all the way, or if they're not eating, you know, the pate and the oysters and, you know, the shellfish and salmon and doing the bone broth, they're not doing it right. And, um, you know, depending on the person, some people are like, oh my gosh, I was brought up on liver. I love liver, but I hate seafood. And it's like, great, start with the organ meats. If that's something that's in your comfort level, it's something you have the taste buds for, great, go for it. Um, on the flip side, if you're like, gross, organ meat. Nah, -uh, I'm not doing it. Um, but I like seafood, then eat a bunch of seafood. They, a, a lot of nutrients overlap. And part of what I was doing in um, giving people all of the tables in the book was just to show people how they can get those nutrients. There isn't one food that's a deal breaker if you're not going to eat it. Um, you guys uh, heard it here first. <laughs> it, you don't have to eat pate in order to be AIP. Um, you can 
find those nutrients in other places. You might have to be more creative um, and maybe eat something else that you still don't like, but don't like as much as the other thing you're trying to avoid. Um, but that's totally normal and fine. So start with the things that that you actually, um, you know, you like build the foundation from there and then move on and, and you take baby steps. You don't have to do it all in a day. That's I love great. that. I love that. And can you just say that your journey from being a vegan to being a nutrivore is just so inspiring? And I know that not everybody's going to walk that journey from being vegan or vegetarian to being a nutrivore the same way as you did. But it's amazing to see that it's possible and what it does. You spoke about the first time you had lamb. I think it was lamb that your partner or husband mm -hmm. made for you and how your body temperature mm -hmm. went up by like five degrees <laughs> immediately um you know what we lovingly call the meat sweats in our <laughs> <Yeah>. households <laughs> and, and how your cheeks got all flushed and red and your body was like yeah I needed this to be able to make yeah. some energy yeah yeah it was a hard transition but you know for me um you know I was really I didn't want to eat meat and I said I'm going to try this as a last resort and I tried a little bit and I couldn't cook it I couldn't be in the room when it was being cooked it needed to be hidden in a bunch of vegetables you know and like only a bite and I still noticed something and because I noticed something that's what inspired me to continue on that path and, um, you know, that's what we're trying to do when we're eating is just try to figure out how to be more intuitive about what is what we're putting in our bodies that are um, enabling us to live our best, most healthy lives. Um, and the things that are putting into our body that are either neutral, so maybe they're just giving us energy, but like nothing else, or maybe they're harming us, you know, that education, um, you know, learning how to feel and, and interpret what our bodies are telling us. I mean, that's a, I think it's a life skill, right? <laughs> it is totally a life skill. And I feel like in nature, we wouldn't have survived oh, yeah. without it. Only because of our comfy lives that, um, you know, we've been able to afford to lose it. But, you know, illness is one of the ways we mm -hmm. find our bodies again. And, you know, as a, as a path to inner work and self-discovery, I think it's in my life being ill has been a blessing, but it hasn't been easy. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. We're going to let you go because we could talk for hours. Um, and just thank you so much for being such an incredible guest, producing a wonderful book. Um, I will continue to share it with clients. And uh, I love the tables, the menus. I love soup for breakfast. I was like, thank you. Thank you so much making for putting soup for breakfast. I love that. And the fact that you guys address eating on a budget and uh, you have a whole season of your podcast around that is just so, so helpful and respectful for those people who might not be able to go the whole way. And um, I'm just so grateful for your book and can't wait to share more about it. We're going to put your website, autoimmunewellness.com, your Instagram handle, uh, Angie's Instagram handle in there so people can follow you. And uh, we can't wait for next year when the... Oh, thank you guys so much. Thanks for all the thoughtful questions and for having a nice chat with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you and be well. Have a great day. And thank you. Bye, guys. Hey, thank you for listening. If you like the show, 
why not subscribe using the podcast app of your choice and get each episode delivered to you automatically. If you love the show, consider sharing it or leaving a rating or review using the links in the show notes. You can find your free downloads and all the ways to work with us at eatmovelive52.com slash podcast guest. And thank you for listening to the Eat Move Live 52 podcast. Thank you.